0: Chapter 2, and Mirren is going to pass out an outline that I kind of do sometimes that you guys can follow along a little bit, and it's supposed to kind of follow along with what I've got up here, but depending on the rabbit trails that I get on, you know, you may have to just kind of adapt, so I kept it kind of basic. Um, Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with how Michael and I prepare, what we typically do when we're going to do a series together is we will both kind of do our separate independent studies on a particular section, and then we'll get together and compare notes, and we'll look at what I may have come up with and what he may have come up with, and basically my goal is to get as close to him as I can. My goal is to come to the table when we get together and have an outline or a framework that's some semblance, some skeleton of what he's got already, right? Uh, and so sometimes it's very succinct and sometimes it's, we go in different directions. But with this particular passage, it was kind of interesting because we both had almost an identical outline and identical sections. I had one more section than he had. But our framework is very, very similar, and in many respects, most of the differences just came in how how we titled the sections. So we thought this was kind of a wash as to who might do this, and there were a couple of points that uh, he brought up in his outline that I have incorporated in mine that you'll hear this morning. Anyway, it's good to be before you guys. I'm excited about this because we have a neat passage. We're obviously going to look at the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if you guys remember uh, from last week, uh, Jesus had promised on several occasions that he would be sending the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was going to come as a gift and he would baptize the apostles. And the instructions were, remain in Jerusalem Because when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to be my witnesses. And and the the radius is going to start with Jerusalem and then expand to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we saw last week that, thank you, Mirren, that uh, the disciples had remained in Jerusalem. They were gathering in the upper room together. They were continually devoting themselves to prayer. And as a result of their prayer time, and their fellowship, the word says that they were all of one accord. They were all with one mind. And then they felt like they needed to replace Judas, and so they deferred to God, and God provided Matthias, and they were 12, and they were ready for the assignments. They were ready for the assignment that God has for them, to share the gospel to the nations. And so what we're going to see this morning is how this promised gift of the Holy Spirit uh, comes to the believers, just as Jesus had promised. And what we're going to see is that this gift, this long-awaited gift, is validated in many different ways. It's confirmed in many different ways. And I hope, maybe, that over the course of our look at this study this morning, that we might recognize how it's very similar to the Holy Spirit's work in our own lives. Now, some of you may say, I know the story of Pentecost. I know kind of what happens, and I understand the idea of these flaming tongues and these speaking in different languages, and say, that's never happened to me. I know I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, but I've never had that kind of experience. Well, as we said at the beginning when we started this study, a lot of the book of Acts is a narrative, and a lot of it is just going to be descriptive as opposed to prescriptive. In other words, Luke is recording for his friend Theophilus. This is a history of the early church. This is a history of the events. And I'm writing down for you what took place early on so that you can know for certain the things that I'm writing are true. You can know the truth of the gospel. You can know the truth about Christ Jesus. And so it's very descriptive in nature. And sometimes we shouldn't look at it as being prescriptive, as though the things that we read and the things that we see God doing in the early church necessarily should apply to us directly, that our behavior should look exactly like this, or that we should have the same kinds of activities happening to us. But we're going to see how the Holy Spirit is validated. This gift is validated in four different ways. So if you look at your outline, let's look at Acts chapter 2. And we'll just begin with verses 1 through 4. It says, And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, first thing we'll say is they were all together in one place and we can generally assume that this was probably the apostles, the immediate group, the twelve, and maybe the women as well. And they're in one place and they're celebrating Pentecost. Now, if you don't know what Pentecost is, um, Pentecost is the Greek word for the um, harvest festival. It was a one-day festival. Okay, It was prescribed in the Old Testament for the Jews to observe. It occurred 50 days... After Passover. Actually, it's the Festival of Weeks is what I should say. It is a harvest festival, but it's called the Festival of Weeks. I don't know why it's called the Festival of Weeks and celebrated on one day, but that's what it was. And so they're gathered together, and they're celebrating the Festival of Weeks. And as they're doing that, God chooses this moment to send this promised gift of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon this immediate group, it comes in a supernatural way. And we see it confirmed in sort of three supernatural aspects. The first is in verse 2. "...and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind." So the first way that God reveals and validates this gift of the Holy Spirit is through an audible sound of a rushing wind that fills the entire house. Now, can you imagine what that must have been like? A violent rushing wind just coming through this household. A real audible sound that was recognized by everybody. I mean, we, we joke at, at my house, we live in Rush Creek, and the, the joke in Rush Creek is, you know you live in Rush Creek when the wind blows outside and your candle inside goes out. The houses are very leaky, very breezy. But this is supernatural. This is something amazing that God is doing. Okay? The second supernatural aspect or manifestation we see is a visual. Look at verse 3. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. So we have this visual, this supernatural visual confirmation of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Tongues like fire resting on these guys in this house. I have no idea what that looks like other than what Luke has given as a description. But can you imagine... A sound of a violent rushing wind, and now we see this visual of tongues of fire. The third supernatural manifestation, if you will, or evidence, will be speech. Verse 4 says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. They all began to speak with other tongues. So we have this rushing wind sound, we have this visual of tongues like fire, and then we have this work happening within the men themselves to speak in other languages. And you may say, well, what does that mean? What does it mean that they spoke in other languages as the Spirit was giving utterance? Well, the Greek word here literally means a known language. A known language in the world that would otherwise not have been known by these guys. So the supernatural empowerment that the Holy Spirit was doing at this moment was basically empowering these guys to speak in a known language that they did not know. They were just Galileans. They were from the region of Galilee. Basic guys. And the Holy Spirit is empowering them to speak with another language. A known vocabulary. It would be like me, all of a sudden, breaking into Spanish, which I know a little bit of Spanish, but I certainly do not speak it fluently. And Alfredo goes, I understand everything he's saying. And he's speaking like where I'm from. And that's what we'll see, that there were men and women present, observing this, who said, I was born... Way, way in that other region in the world. I live here in Jerusalem now. And these guys are speaking in my language where I was born. Where I came from. And I understand everything they're saying. Alfredo would say, I understand. He's talking about the mighty deeds of God. He's speaking in Spanish. I get every single word of it. And I go, I have no idea what I just said. I don't know Spanish. I know English. And that's it. And so we have this supernatural Thing happening through these guys and it's a beautiful picture look at verses 5 through 12 that's what we'll see these guys all recognizing it says now there were jews living in jerusalem and they were devout men from every nation under heaven and when this sound occurred the multitude came together and were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language so this thing that began in this house in this room with the immediate group has now expanded Right, This activity has drawn a crowd. You've heard the saying that nothing attracts a crowd like a crowd. right? So this group is growing and these observers are gathering and they're seeing what's taking place. Okay, And they're in bewilderment and they're hearing this. And it says, verse 7, And they were amazed. Well, uh, and when this sound occurred, the multitude. Okay. And wh- they were amazed and marveled, saying, Why? Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born. Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all, watch this, they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? So Luke tells us that these were people who were born elsewhere and were now living in Jerusalem. And they're experiencing and they're witnessing the Holy Spirit working through the apostles to speak in these other known languages and they're speaking about the mighty deeds of God. And we can assume, we can presume that they're probably speaking about all the things that Jesus did in the three and a half years that they spent with him. And certainly the resurrection and certainly the most recent events of watching him come out of the grave, spend time with them between Passover and Pentecost, and then ascending back to the Father. I mean, that's probably fresh on their minds and it's pretty miraculous. And I think... I'd be quick to tell everybody about that too. And so when it says the mighty deeds of God, we can assume it's probably those kinds of things. And so a point that Michael had made when we got together is that there's a distinction here about how the Holy Spirit is working. The Holy Spirit is acting in uh, two ways here. And I'll kind of explain those for just a quick moment. The first is baptism with the Spirit. In other words, Jesus promised that this would happen to the apostles. He promised that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and he told them to wait in Jerusalem. And this represents basically an invisible act that includes believers into the body of Christ. Paul said that by one spirit, we are baptized into one body. And so... Each one of us is baptized with the Holy Spirit when we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And at that moment of salvation, we are included in the body and we are baptized with the Holy Spirit. Done. The second aspect of the Holy Spirit that we see working here is a filling. And it's slightly distinct. Sometimes this refers to a more general manifestation of the Holy Spirit as we submit to him. Uh, Ephesians 5 8 says or commands us to be filled with the Spirit. In other words, allow yourselves to be used by God. If you remember the fabric of the passage in Ephesians, the, the letter as a whole, Paul was reminding the church in Ephesus that the first couple of chapters this is what God has done for you. Look at everything God has done on your behalf. And then as he pulls it all together, he says, now walk, because of what God has done for you, because of who you are in Christ Jesus, now walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling of your life. And one of those commands is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul knows that they have been baptized by the Holy Spirit, but he's saying, behave like it, allow God to use you. And another way in which the filling of the Holy Spirit looks is for an assignment, a specific Empowerment with a very, very outward manifestation. We see that in the Old Testament. The the Holy Spirit did not indwell people in the Old Testament, but he came upon people for an expressed purpose, for an expressed assignment, for a temporary empowerment for God's glory. And we see that here, right now, in speaking of tongues, that it is an outward expression of, it's an event, and it's expressed purpose that this filling enables these guys to speak momentarily in another known language. Remember what John the Baptist said? He said, I baptize with water, but there's one coming who is more powerful than me. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so we see in this first section here that these tongues, this event, this filling and this empowerment validated God's gift and it points the world to Jesus. The Holy Spirit does the same thing in our lives. He does the same thing in you and I. He uses us To point the world to Jesus Christ. He empowers us to bring him glory. He uses us in ways that point others to Jesus. And so this Holy Spirit is validated in an audible experience, a visual experience, and a supernatural experience of tongues. But look at verse 13 for a second. So while many people were gathered and hearing and understanding everything that was being said and they were in bewilderment, you got some who, eh, they're not quite of the same accord. Verse 13 says, but others were mocking and, pl- and saying, these guys are full of sweet wine. <laughs> so Peter and the others obviously realized that this needs to be addressed. And so our section second section this morning is going to, reveal how the promise of the Holy Spirit is validated by Scripture. And so as a result of these naysayers saying, ah, these guys are just drunk, we see in verse 14, but Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, now you know what I love about this? Some of you may have a note in your Bible that a more literal translation of Peter taking his stand with the (laughs) eleven, literally is translated, he was put forward as the spokesman. (laughs) Anybody ever been in a situation like that before? You know, in in a group setting, everybody agrees that something needs to be done, something needs to be said, and then somehow, somehow you get kind of pushed to the front, everybody else sort of takes a couple of steps back, and and you, you find you're like, oh, guess it's me, you know? Or you play the one, two, three, not it, and you're the last one. Obviously, this is by God's design, but I love that Luke records this literal translation as he was put forth as the spokesman. And we know the personality of Peter in, in Scripture. We know that he's bold, we know that he's audacious, and we know that he's certainly on fire for the Lord. He was willing to die and, and, and go to the grave defending Jesus militarily, and Jesus says, put away your sword, and so on and so forth, right? And so Peter is going to address the crowds, and he he addresses the crowds, and he sort of debunks their presumption or assumption that these guys are drunk. Uh, The first is obviously in verse 15. He refutes this false claim by saying, for these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. Basically, it's 9 a.m. Let's be real about this, people. It's 9 a.m., we're not drunk. So he... Refuses or refutes with a, a very obvious natural explanation. But then he's also going to give a scriptural explanation for what's taking place. Verse 16, he says, But this is what was spoken, spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit upon all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. In other words, he is reminding this audience, and remember that he addressed them as men of Judea and Jerusalem. It's kind of like hearkening fellow countrymen, you know, brothers of mine, You all should know the prophecy of Joel. You should be reminded of this. God foretold, God prophesied that something like this would happen. Now, Joel's prophecy is about the last days. It is about God's judgment and his redemptive plan coming to an end. And we know that we are living in the last days. Now, they seem long to us and we eagerly await the return of Christ Jesus But we need to be ready because he may return at any day. It was true in their day. It is true in our day. It'll be true in the next generation if he hasn't come in our generation. Every day we should be ready for Jesus' return. And Peter is warning and reminding these uh, contrarians, if you will, hey, Joel spoke about this, and this comes first to us as the nation of Israel. The promise of redemption comes first to the nation of Israel and then to the Gentiles. And this is what we see taking place. It shall be in the last days that I will pour forth of my spirit. So Peter is explaining to his audience, this is what's going on. This is a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. And if you would, turn with me to Second Peter. This is just a little bit of an aside in terms of maybe how we look at the character of Peter or the man of Peter. Remember what I said about Peter being delegated as the spokesperson of the group? Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. You might remember this from when we looked at this uh, last year in 2020. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Keep your finger on Peter there for a second. We are living in the last days, and God is being patient right now. He's patiently waiting that all should come to a saving relationship in Christ Jesus, and that none should perish. And and just, this is a text, this is a truth that Peter has revealed in his letters, and look at how early it began in his ministry. Immediately, he is referring to the last days, and he's hearkening to his fellow countrymen. He's pleading with them. We see that with Paul as well in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, where Paul is pleading with the Israelites, you guys are my fellow countrymen, Repent. This promise is for you as well. God has not forgotten about you. Look at Acts. Keep your finger in Peter. Look at Acts chapter 3. We will see this in two weeks. Peter's second sermon, Acts 3, 19 through 21. Peter reminds Another audience, maybe some of the same people, repent therefore and return that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. So the reason I want to look at those two passages is this is Peter in both cases in his letter and in a second sermon later in Acts. Where he's reminding that we're in the last days, that Joel's prophecy has begun, that God's redemptive plan will ultimately end in judgment, and you need Christ Jesus. You need to be washed in his blood, because when he returns, that's it. And then the last thing go back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter three fifteen. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who speaks, who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Always be ready to give an answer for the hope you have in Christ Jesus. This is it's a little bit different than the pattern we were, ta- we were looking at, but I wanted to highlight that because, remember we talked about Peter being put forth as a spokesman? From the beginning of this ministry of the Holy Spirit, from the beginning of his empowerment and his assignment to share the gospel, he has been prepared to share about the hope he has. You know, we should be ready as well. If you find yourself all of a sudden in front and everybody has stepped back, the Holy Spirit will empower you and give you the words to say. And you should be ready to share about the hope that you have and the joy that you have in Christ Jesus. Jesus promised the disciples that when they found themselves before kings and rulers and positions of authority in the courts, that the Holy Spirit would give them the words to say. He would recall for them all the things that he had said. The Holy Spirit does the same for us. He gives us the words. Have you ever been in a situation where you were speaking to somebody and you started sharing about Jesus or some biblical principle and you're kind of reciting some scripture and you get done, you're like, I have no idea where that came from. I didn't even know I knew that scripture. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. And he was doing that, I believe, for Peter here, recalling this prophecy of Joel. And saying, this is how it applies, men of Judea, men of Israel, men of Jerusalem. You should know this and you should repent. And so the second validation that we see of this gift of the Holy Spirit is, the gift of the Holy Spirit is validated by Scripture. God said, in the last days, I will pour forth my spirit upon all mankind. And this is what we see happening. God prophesied that this would happen. And it's happening on this very day to God's people. Now, third section. We'll look at verses 22 to 36. We're going to see how this promise of the Holy Spirit is validated by Jesus himself. This is still part of Peter's sermon. He says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Now, I'm kind of pausing there in the middle of his thought. He's describing Jesus. But we're going to say that Peter uses, let's say, three proofs here to um, reveal how Jesus validates the gift of the Holy Spirit. This first proof is just going to be in verse 22. Jesus was attested to you by God with miracles and wonders. In other words, what you're seeing happen now in this supernatural way, to these guys speaking in these other languages, is akin to what Jesus did when he walked with us. He was attested, he was accredited by God through the miracles that he did. Think about all the times that we saw Jesus perform a miracle. It validated who he said he was. It proved his divinity for the audience. I love that the Greek here uses a construct for the word attested in a perfect passive tense, which implies that these activities, these miracles, these supernatural signs and wonders that God performed through Jesus happened in the past, but their results, their effects continue on indefinitely into the future. In other words, the miracles and signs that Jesus performed... They validated who he was as part of the Godhead, and they continue to attest to him to this day going forward. Peter says, you saw these miracles and wonders. You know that they were real. And you know that what you're seeing today with the language is the same power of God. The second proof is that Jesus died and rose according to God's plan. Verses 23 to 31. This man, so he first refers to him as Jesus the Nazarene, then Peter continues on, this man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. I won't read the whole thing right now. But he's basically saying... Jesus was handed over to be crucified by God's design. This was part of God's predetermined plan. This was part of God's design with, again, effects in the past continuing on into the future. Remember Genesis 3.15 when God began his redemptive plan? He said, I will send a seed And he will crush the head of Satan. Turn with me to Acts 3.18. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Turn with me to Acts 4. 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus whom thou didst anoint both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand or thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. These passages reveal that the crucifixion didn't catch God off guard. The crucifixion wasn't a surprise. It was part of God's design. And in verse 24, he says, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. It was impossible for death to hold Jesus in the grave. And it is the same power that... That rose Jesus from the grave that is empowering the apostles to speak supernaturally. And look at verses 25 to 29. For David says of him, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover my flesh also will abide in hope. Because thou... Wilt not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow thy holy one to undergo decay. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou wilt make me full of gladness. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. So Peter uses a quote by David where David is referring to his Lord and he's also saying, hey... Peter says, David has died. I can assure you, he is dead, dead. His grave is with us today. But remember what he had said previously about Jesus. Jesus rose, is alive. Death could not hold him, could not contain him. The grave couldn't contain him. Like the hymn says, O death, where is thy sting? Grave, where is your victory? Is that how it goes? Grave, where is Yeah. So so, so Peter says, even the great patriarch, even the one whom we herald, even King David, whom we highly esteem, the patriarch of Israel, he still died a natural death and he is still in the grave and his grave is with us today. But Christ Jesus lives. Christ Jesus has been raised and sits at the right hand of the Father. So the second proof is that he was crucified and rose according to God's plan. The third proof of Jesus will be in verse 32 and 33, 36. This Jesus, God raised up again to which we are all witnesses, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth This, which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, whom you crucified... Peter reminds his audience that Jesus was raised up and witnessed by many. And then in verse 33, he says that Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God. Remember what Paul wrote in Philippians? That Jesus did not see equality with God as something to be grasped. That's because he was God. He is God. He temporarily lowered himself to be like us, knowing full well that he would return To heaven and reign. And remember what Jesus said to the disciples about sending the Holy Spirit? He said, I have to go away so that the Helper can come. If I don't go, he can't come to you, he can't be sent. And so when Jesus ascends back to the right hand of the Father, he sends the Holy Spirit. And we see that playing out now in the lives of the apostles. And so the third proof is that Jesus sits at the right hand and has sent the Helper, he has sent the Holy Spirit. So we see that the resurrected Jesus who is alive today validates the promise of the Holy Spirit. So we've seen God validated in these supernatural ways. We've seen scripture validate the gift of the Holy Spirit and it's playing out exactly as prophesied. And now we see that Jesus himself validates the gift of the Holy Spirit coming. Now I want you to turn to John 16. John 16, verse 7. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now watch this. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Keep your finger there on John for a second and turn back to Acts. Our fourth and final section this morning, verses 37 through 41. Now, when they heard this, in other words, when they heard Peter's testimony, when they heard Peter's sermon... And they saw the scripture from Joel being revealed. And they saw the reality of Jesus, their Messiah, whom they crucified. When they heard all of this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We'll pause there for a second. Go back to John. If you've got your finger there, go back to John. 16, verse 8. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Verse 10. And concerning righteous, righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you no longer behold me and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. That's what we, go back to Acts, that's what we see playing out in the hearts of these onlookers. These guys who were at once not convicted, not sure what they were witnessing, didn't understand this supernatural event that was taking place, claimed that these guys were simply drunk. When they hear... What Peter had to say about the prophecy of Joel, when they saw that they had crucified the Messiah, the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised would convict of sin pierces their hearts, convicts their hearts to the point where they go, oh my gosh, what have we done? They realized that they were part and parcel. They were party to choosing Barabbas. Instead of Jesus. Even though it was part of God's design, even though it was intended as part of God's plan, they were still culpable. That is the sovereignty of God, friends. The sovereignty of God is that He had designed that Jesus would die on a cross, and at the same time, free will was involved. By those who chose to put him there. The same is true for us. God has redeemed us. He has reconciled us back to himself. And yet. He still makes room. For me to make really bad decisions in life. I'm not supposed to. And I believe it grieves him. But he's not surprised by it. And he doesn't have to react and start to backpedal and go, oh, great, Dustin didn't do what I needed him to do. He didn't listen to my Holy Spirit. And now I got to reverse and remanufacture this plan. No. He's sovereign, he's in control, he's got this. And so we see these hearts are convicted, and the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit is validated by the crowds. It has been validated by God in the supernatural. It has been validated by Scripture. It's been validated by Jesus. And now the crowds also validate it. And they say, what shall we do? And Peter's answer in verse 38, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The very agent who is at work in the hearts of the men speaking in foreign languages, can fill you too, he's saying. What you're witnessing is something that you can also be a partaker of. And all that is required of you is to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Your hearts are grieved right now because you helped put Jesus on that cross and you were at one time rejecting him. But the Holy Spirit can forgive you of that. You called these guys drunk and you didn't believe what was happening. The Holy Spirit can forgive you of that. You told a lie yesterday morning or maybe this morning on the way here. The Holy Spirit can forgive you of that. It requires repentance and baptism in Christ Jesus. you know i think we i think we make this truth that peter is highlighting for us the answer to this question we've seen it in scripture the rich young ruler came to jesus and said what do i need to do to enter the kingdom of heaven and he left kind of dejected because maybe he wasn't ready to give up what it would take to enter the kingdom and When the disciples asked Jesus, what does all that mean? He says, it's tough for the rich because they're so reliant on their resources. And he gave an illustration about a camel going through the eye of a needle. And his disciples, when they heard that, they were like, well, that sounds like it's basically impossible. And Jesus' answer was, yeah, for men, for men, it's absolutely impossible. But for God, anything is possible. We'll see later on in Acts chapter 16, where the prison guard approached Paul and Silas and says, What do I need to do to be saved? And their answer is, repent. Believe in Christ Jesus. And in the church today we make salvation oh, so convoluted sometimes. You know, we'll we'll say that it's the cross plus a whole bunch of stuff you gotta do. Peter says here, repent. Turn from your sin, stop doing it, and turn to Jesus. That's it. It isn't do all of this stuff, it isn't follow this prescription, follow this equation, jump through these hoops, repent, and believe in Jesus Christ. It's like when I play shoots and ladders with Miran. First things first. If you watch that, if you were a fly on the wall watching that game, those games when we play, it is atrocious. I mean, she spins that wheel, she gets a number, whatever it lands on, and you know, you're supposed to systematically go like this, up that board. She will go up instead of across. No, 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 hold on a second, gotta go this direction. She'll go up the chutes, she'll go down the ladders, and it's like every turn, I gotta go first things first. Peter says first things first repent and be baptized in Christ Jesus don't make it complicated don't don't turn it into the cross plus a whole bunch of stuff so the last thing we see here is that the promise of the holy spirit is validated by the crowds they witnessed the apostles speaking in foreign languages they heard Peter's sermon they were convicted And they received his word. And it says that the body of Christ grew that day. Look at verse 41. Verse 40. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Those who received his word were baptized, and there are about 3,000 souls. So I said hopefully that maybe we might see some of this in our own lives. You know, if we look at these validations of the Holy Spirit, maybe we see some similar patterns, and you say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, the gift of God's Holy Spirit in our lives, in our baptism... Should likewise be evidenced and confirmed. Our salvation, just our salvation alone, is a supernatural event. We are not able to say that Jesus Christ is Lord except by the grace of God. Paul says it is a gift. It's a gift that you may say that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because if it was something that you could do, you would boast about it. You would turn it into a self-proclaiming work of your own. So acceptance and the grace to say Jesus is Lord is a supernatural gift that happened to you and I when we believed in Jesus. And it's our job to allow the Holy Spirit to work in and through us so that we can point others to Jesus as well. It may not happen with some flashy event like tongues. But you know that he gives you the words. You know that he empowers you. You know that he guides you. You know that sometimes you are with somebody and you hear that still small voice that says, this person needs to know about Jesus. Or this person needs to know what Jesus has done for you in your life. That's supernatural, friends the same power working in and through us is the same power that enabled and empowered these apostles to speak in these foreign languages. How about this? We've prayed and we've had prayers answered in inexplicable ways. Ways that we can't explain other than crediting God. Many of you have been following what happened with Rennie on our ski trip, and it turns out that she uh, is fine. But the process was that Susan jumped in the ambulance with her, and for two hours prior, Rennie was like bent over in half with a bloated abdomen, and the paramedics were concerned about internal bleeding. And so she was sent to Children's Hospital in the ambulance and Sayer and Mirren and I had to follow along a little bit later after we had gathered everything and uh, got back in the car. And by the time we had made our way to Pittsburgh Children's Hospital, Rennie was still there in the bed, in the emergency room, huddled over in extreme pain. And I go walking down the hallway once I finally get there to see her for the first time. And as I walk into the room, she and Susan are now giggling with each other. Now, my first reaction, of course, is, we're going to pay for an ambulance ride for you guys to laugh here in this emergency room? I thought you were hurt. And they were giggling, and Susan said, do you want to tell them? And, And she said, sure, I can tell them. Dad, the pain went away. And I said, when did the pain go away? She goes, like 30 seconds ago. I said, like, completely? And she said, yeah, like, like, it was like a miracle. Like, it just all of a sudden stopped. She goes, it was still hurting me very, very badly up until like 30 seconds ago. Now, here's the, here's the beautiful thing. I said, well, maybe that was me praying as I was walking down the hallway. I was praying about your situation, hoping you'd be all right. And she says, well, maybe it was my prayer because I just got done praying too. And I said, well, touche. <laughs> My point is this. We, we have no, no way of explaining it other than the hand of God. This is The very same Holy Spirit who empowered the apostles on this day of Pentecost worked in my heart, worked in her heart, and supernaturally changed her condition. And I'm not going to say it was like some miraculous healing or anything other than her condition changed and we have nobody else to give the credit to except God. The third thing, and I've kind of mentioned this and alluded to this already, but we have found ourselves in situations like Peter where the Holy Spirit enables us to recall Scripture and the Holy Spirit gives us our words in our time of need. Just like Peter, just like Peter who found himself being the elected spokesperson and took God's holy word and revealed how God's plan was being manifest and played out perfectly in the lives of everybody present. And he used it as a call to salvation. He encouraged his brethren to repent. God does the same thing through us today. He will, he will bless us with an understanding of this otherwise black ink on white paper And he will give us revelation and show us how this applies to the people that we're interfacing with. And the same Holy Spirit empowering those guys is the same Holy Spirit that empowers you and I to share the gospel. And to encourage those in our sphere of influence to repent and turn to Jesus. And so, this Holy Spirit was promised to the apostles... When he came, he was validated in undeniable ways for the expressed purpose of empowering God's elect and pointing the lost to Jesus. And the same is still true today. The Holy Spirit is still empowering God's elect to point the lost to Jesus. And he has validated in your life and my life over and over and over again. Amen.